Well, we uh, started in this series on why justice matters, and um, we decided that we would turn to the scriptures and see what does the Bible say about justice, and what does biblical justice actually look like, and what does it mean for us as Christ followers to live out biblical justice in our life? Uh, What does it look like for us to be agents of reconciliation in a world that is seemingly divided? Uh, I think if we were to pause for a second and be honest with ourselves, uh, as just as humans, we tend to surround ourselves with people who think like us, who act like us, who look like us, uh, and we find comfort in that. And I would just tell you that that's okay. That is perfectly normal. Uh, The reality is, is we hold fast to the things that make us comfortable, and everyone does this. But here's here's the sticky point of that, is if that is something where we hold too tightly Uh, and refuse to interact with others outside of that circle, what can happen is it brings us to this state of preservation in such a way that we withdraw and it begins to blind us to the things that Jesus wants us to see. So what we need in in our lives are uh, a catalytic event in which we have our eyes open to the things that he wants us to see. And what I mean by catalytic event is it's usually something that is oftentimes a painful experience, but it's a necessary experience where something happens that serves as kind of this jump start for us where the process of reconciliation can begin. And, and now all of a sudden this event causes us to begin to reflect and begin to love mercy in a way that we've never loved it before in a way that we begin to extend it to other people. So last week, we, we, wanted, to see, we wanted to look at what are the ingredients of justice in, in this world that we live in? What is it going to take to bring about unity in this world? Uh, and so we looked at Micah 6.8, where we're reminded of what, what it is that God requires of us, that, that really it's three simple things, that he requires us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Last week, we addressed walking humbly with our God and and that when we walk humbly before God and we walk humbly before one another, unity begins to take place. Reconciliation begins to take place when we die to ourselves and we live for others. And uh, and so today, I want us to, to talk about and address what it means to love mercy. I want to start with a story uh, about a man from Mark chapter 1, uh, and it's verses 40 through 41. And it says this, it says there was a man with leprosy. And I'm just going to pause for a second because the biblical writer here doesn't even mention what this guy's name is. What he says is that there's a man with leprosy. And as I, as I read that and, and processed this a little bit, What I realize is that there are many times where people walk through this life and their identity is wrapped up in their problem. Their identity is wrapped up in their past. And in fact, uh, it's why I'm so passionate about the unique course that we do here at the church, that, that it takes you through a process of identifying 
Who is your identity in Christ? How has he created you? What has he created you for? And that you're not just a man with leprosy. You're not just a, a, a woman with an adulterous past. You're not just a man with lust issues. Or it, The reality is, is your past doesn't define who God has made you to be. And I think it's important for us to just pause there and recognize that this man with leprosy, that is not who he is. That is not God's intended purpose for him. But nonetheless, this man comes to Jesus and he, and he came to him and he begged him on his knees, which lepers, by the way, weren't allowed to do this. Lepers had to stay 50 paces from another person without leprosy. Like they had to keep their distance. <laughs> they were social distancing before social distancing was cool. So there's social distancing big time, 50 paces away from them. And the fact that he was even this close to Jesus was punishable by death. He says to Jesus, he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then it goes on, and, and some translations of this passage of Scripture says that, uh, it says that Jesus then has compassion on the man. And most scholars will tell you that uh, that translation of compassion is not really the best translation of this Scripture. That uh, the, the one that I'm about to read is what most scholars will say is a better translation of it because it communicates something deeper than just compassion. It says that... Uh, uh, that some, uh, it says that, wrote, that there was something that rose up inside of him of the injustice that, that it says most feel that this is, excuse me, most feel that this is a better description, that Jesus was not necessarily compassionate, but that he was indignant, meaning that there was something that rose up inside of him of an injustice. Meaning that when Jesus saw this man and he realized that this is not God's intended purpose for him, when he realized that this is not his best, that there was something almost gut-wrenching that welled up within Jesus and he was indignant and he was, he just, it's almost like this righteous anger against the injustice. And he reaches out his hand and he touches the man. And this is what Jesus said. He says, I am willing, so be clean. See, the, the, man, the, the man with leprosy was like, I know that you have the ability, Jesus. I'm just wondering, are you willing to heal me? And I think that that's maybe what a lot of the world is asking of the church. I know that you are able to speak up. I know that you are able to, to bring hope and life, but are you willing to do it? Are you willing to do it? It's, it's not just enough to be able to do it. The world wants to know, are we willing to do it? As a church, I don't ever want us to get to a place to where we aren't bothered by the things that are going on around us. And I'm not just talking about racial inequality, although that is the, the hot topic of today. As I walk around a lot of uh, my time with my, my nemesis, these crutches, uh, people will at times come up to me, in fact, this just happened this last week, and, and ask if they could pray for my hip. And I'm like, absolutely, you can pray for my hip. I hope you pray for healing. I'm believing that there's healing when I go back and get x-rays that, that, that I'm going to be healed. 
The truth is, is I don't ever want us as, as, a, as a people to get to a place to where we see someone that is sick or we know of a neighbor who's been diagnosed with cancer, or we know someone who's dealing with depression, and we just are not bothered by it. We need to be bothered by the things that are not of what God wants for his people or for this world. Proverbs chapter 3, in the message paraphrase, uh, says this. It says, never walk away from someone who deserves help. Your hand... Everybody hold up their hand for a second if you're watching at home. Do what I hate that pastors do and make you do something. And let's hold up your hand. Your hand is God's hand for that person. Don't tell your neighbor, hey, you know what, maybe some other time. Or, you know what, try me tomorrow when you know full well that the money's right there in your pocket. So what I want to give you this morning is three simple points if we have enough time, which this is second service, so we have enough time, uh, I'll get to the, the, the final c- content of, of what I think will begin to wrap all of this together. So the first point that I have is that cho- choices lead and feelings follow. See, most people want the feelings first, and then they'll step out and do it. And I would just argue that if we take a step, maybe it's possible that the feelings will follow us. Uh, I've heard this in the context of in worship, in a worship service, uh, people will say, well, uh, you know, I'm not going to really raise my hands to worship because I, I just don't feel it. Well, what if you raised your hands and then you felt it? Like, what would happen if you stepped out in something that you weren't really feeling, but all of a sudden, because you're stepping out and doing the thing that you know you need to be doing, now all of a sudden you begin to feel it? in your life. So you can't always trust your feelings. Sometimes we just have to take a step and, and feel it. And, and let me just give you, if you don't believe me in this, let me just give you an example of how Jesus did this in Matthew chapter 9. Where, and I want you to hear as I read this to you, I want you to hear the, the action words, the doing words in this. So Jesus, here's the first doing word, went. He went through all the towns and villages and he taught in the synagogues. And then another doing word, he proclaimed. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. And then he did another thing. He healed. He prayed for healing of every disease and sickness. And then when he saw the crowds, the feelings followed. And he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When we were uh, early on in the church, this is our, uh, we're in 13 years, we're going on 14 years of being here. Uh, one of the things that we wanted to do is establish what, how, what was going to be the mission's focus for our church. And so uh, very early on, we set out, we didn't really know how to uh, go about that. Uh, I had a mentor who ha- gave me some insight to some of this, but we just recognized that whatever we did for our missions effort, we wanted it to be reciprocal. We wanted it to be a two-way street. And so uh, being uh, San Antonio, a large uh, Spanish-speaking population, uh, we decided that South America made sense to us. And so I set out and I spent time in Chile and I spent time in Peru and I spent time in Colombia and I went, I went to those places, hoping that the feelings would follow. 
And it wasn't until I actually sat down at a restaurant with one of our ministry partners, Juan Allen, who's now become a very good friend of mine. And I sat down at a restaurant in Cartagena, Colombia, and he shared with me what he was doing uh, in the medical missions field. Uh, he shared with me what his role is in the Amazon River and, and how they take medical care up the Amazon River, but they also bring uh, the hope and life of Jesus Christ to those villages. It was in that moment that I felt it. And so now, if you have been here for any amount of time, if, if you've been watching for very long, you know that Colombia is our mission's uh, focus. And, and now I have this privilege to uh, even take my children on missions trips to Colombia. And we've been able to take uh, my two older kids, uh, my youngest, hopefully, uh, all things uh, aside, hopefully we'll be able to go in 2021. But it's interesting when you take your kids, you, you can, I can come back and I can explain to them uh, some of the living conditions that our, uh, that our friends live in, in, in Colombia. And I, I can explain it to them. I can tell them what that's like. But it's not until they go. It's not until they do it and they see it for themselves do they really begin to feel the weight of not just their blessing of what they have here, but the weight and the burden of what they don't have there. There's something about action. There's something about going and doing when all of a sudden the feelings begin to follow. And I would say just in serving one another. As a parent, if you have the opportunity to, uh, to wake your kids up uh, on a Saturday morning, and if they're like mine at noon, and, uh, and say, listen, I, I know that you like to sleep till noon, but today we're going to get up early and we're going to go and we're going to serve. We're going to take care of people. We're going we're gonna to do, and, and if they say, well, I don't feel like it, maybe the feelings will follow. All right, so number two, we are to see people the right way. On the surface, uh, if you encounter a lot of people, uh, on the surface, there are some of those people that will give you a lot of reasons to not like them. Uh, you know people like this. Uh, there are people that are, we live in a, in a world where they're just people who are mean, right? And, and on the surface, you're like, I don't like that person. And, and, they, and they probably don't like you. And yet the reality is that what happens is if all we're doing is looking on the outside without knowing what's going on on the inside, then we can unknowingly be hurtful and dismissive of people. But when you know their story, when you begin to, to get a feel for who they are and what they've experienced and what they've gone through, now all of a sudden it begins to change your perspective in such a way that, that maybe that person who is mean and who is angry, who is depressing or whatever, maybe you start to realize and you can start to see them the way that Jesus sees them. A few weeks ago or a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Lucy uh, sat on the stage with me and shared and opened up some of her experiences as to what it means to live in this country as a black woman. And as she shared with the staff prior to that, there were things about her story that I had no idea about. And all of a sudden, it began to change my perspective and it opened my eyes to things that I never knew. 
As a culture, we have begun to lose the ability to have any sort of in-depth relationships. The relationships that we have are, are merely surface or, uh, or peripheral. They're, they're, they're within, you know, I mean, I have like 1,100, 1,200, 1,500 Facebook friends. How many do you have? Right? But they're not my friends. Like, I don't, I don't, I mean, some of them are my friends. I mean, everybody from our church, you guys are my friends. But, but how well do I really know them? See, we, we live in this culture where it's like, well, I'll keep you at a distance and you can know this much about me. But when we begin to know people's story, when we get to really know people, it starts to make sense. And now all of a sudden, we, we can go through this life with the lens of Jesus and not see people for what's just on the outside. And that is the moral of the story of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? If we look at that story, and I know many of you will be familiar with it, and for those that are watching, I'm sure you're familiar with this story, but, but for a refresher, I'm going to read to you the, the story uh, based out of the, the message paraphrase because it's a little bit quicker. And It says, Jesus answered by telling a story. There was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Um, most scholars believe that this is probably a Jewish man. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, and uh, Eugene Peterson here, as he's uh, taking some liberties, uses some sarcasm. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite, religious man, showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him, and when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him, and he gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him up onto his donkey, and he led him to an inn, and he made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. On my bill I'll pay you on my way back. And then Jesus says to the people that he's talking to, he says, what do you think? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? And the one said to him, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do the same. Here's what's interesting about this story is that uh, if we look at kind of the three characters of this story, we might be able to find ourselves in one of them. And uh, if you take a look at first, the, there's these thieves, right? So you, you, I don't need to go into all the detail of the dynamics of this culture. Uh, there's plenty of messages and sermons on the Good Samaritan, but you just need to know this if you don't know already. Samaritans and Jews, no bueno. Like they don't get along with one another. They hate one another. They despise each other in such a way that they would never, I mean, it was almost like, uh, like eating, like to associate with them, with a Samaritan for a Jew was like eating pork, which if you know is like the worst of the worst. They, they, they despised one another. And yet here comes religious leaders and they're coming by and, uh, and they're going across the street, they're avoiding it. And, and here's the thing is initially though, there's thieves. There's thieves that beat up this this man, and if we find ourselves in the story as a thief, then the, the thinking behind that is what, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. 
Now, for the record, I don't think any of us in this room or anybody watching online fall into that category. I don't think we are those kinds of people. I don't think we are thieves. There is, however, a taker crowd, but I believe that they're probably the most unhappy people in the world. The priests saw a problem, and they saw it as a problem to avoid. And what they would be saying is, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. That's what the priests were saying. And then there's the Good Samaritan, this man who despised the, the culture and the, uh, the ethnicity of the man laying in the street, and he saw a person to be loved. And his saying is, what's mine is mine, or excuse me, he's saying, what's mine is yours, and I'm going to give it. At the end of the day, my prayer for us as a church is that we are a people that don't live for ourselves, but look for opportunities and ways in which we can be generous towards other people and love people no matter who they are. Number three, and maybe one of the most important points is that we need to remember what Jesus did for me. Forgiveness is one of the most difficult things as Christ followers because there's something within us in our humanity that doesn't want to forgive. And yet we, if we take a step back and recognize the forgiveness that we've received from Christ, we have no other choice than to forgive. Why do I forgive people? Because I don't want the blessing of forgiveness to stop with me. There's a story in the New Testament where Jesus is gathering with a bunch of religious people in a home. Uh, the home's owned by a guy named Simon. And, uh, and as these people are gathering together, there's this known prostitute from the community who walks into this house with religious people in it. And all of the religious people know that she's a prostitute. It was, it, it was definitely known. And Jesus is there and they're looking at her, thinking in their minds, what are you doing here? Like, why are you here? And this prostitute comes in and she's weeping. She's, she's bawling, tears rolling down her face. And she falls at the feet of Jesus. And, and as she falls to the feet of Jesus, her tears hitting his feet, she begins to wipe the tears off of his feet uh, with her hair. And then she does something so unthinkable. She takes a, a jar of perfume that would, have been, that would have amounted to about a year's worth of salary. So whatever your yearly annual salary is, think about that number in your head, and that's what she did. It was obscene. And so she pours this, this perfume over Jesus' feet and, and wipes his feet and cleans his feet. And Simon is looking at this as it's going on, and he's wondering, why are you allowing this? Well, why are you doing this? This doesn't make any sense. You know who she is. And I wonder how many of us find ourselves with a Simon mindset in this life. Where we look at circumstances and people and situations and we think, God, why are you allowing this? We think we're better than the prostitutes out there. 
Oftentimes what we do is we look at our life with some sort of moral comparison, don't we? We, we think, we, we watch the news and we see chaos and we see just unheard of things and we think, well, at least I'm not that bad. And we begin to compare ourselves to, to other sinners and really our comparison should be the blameless son of God. That he's the one that knew no sin and took on our sin, that, that if we're going to compare ourselves to anyone, it's got to be to Jesus. And, and, and next to Jesus, we don't add up. It doesn't work. The math is off. And yet this is what Jesus says to all of us Simons. In Luke seven forty seven. he says, Therefore I tell you, this woman, speaking to the prostitute, her sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Let that just sink in a little bit. Where we begin to equate our lives up against Jesus, we recognize, you know what? I need a lot more forgiveness than I thought. And when we can find ourselves in that place where, where this is all of us, it, that one of the best things that we can do is just begin our day every single day reminding us how much he loves us and how much mercy he has extended to us. And when we do that, when we begin to recognize and acknowledge the mercy that we have received 1 John 4.19 will be true that, that we will then begin to extend love and we will love other people because he first loved us. Micah 6.8 says that we are to love mercy. Well, we love mercy because we are the greatest recipients of it. When we come to this place, this acknowledgement and realization of just how much mercy we've received... We fall in love with it. And when we fall in love with it, we begin to live justly, which we'll talk about next week. But with everything that we're talking about in these three points, encompassed in all of this, whether we are to uh, be a people who see others as Jesus sees them, if we're to be a people who acknowledge the mercy uh, that, that we have received in our life, when we are a people who, who love each other, the reality is, is that all of those things, although biblical responses are things that we can do pretty well without the move and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. What I mean by that is, as much as identifying ourselves with the Samaritan and, and going into a circumstance and a situation and doing something and helping them out is important. It is. Doing something is important. If there's one thing that I've learned over the last couple of weeks, it's that remaining silent and not doing anything or crossing the street as the religious leaders did to avoid the circumstances or the situation of the world, that's not a great answer. It's not a great response. So not doing anything, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do anything, but what I am saying is that it is possible to do a lot of things in these uh, explanations, and it not necessarily take a whole lot of empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do it. 
Let me explain. I probably don't have enough time to explain all of this, but you guys came on Father's Day, and you guys can turn me off, but you guys have to wait for your beef sticks. So, as much as doing something or anything to stand up for justice is important for us today, the solution to the world's problems lies more than in just a shift in how we see people. It's more than just taking care of those who are hurting. The reality is, is there the message that's being shouted right now is a cry for unity and equality. And listen, it's a noble cry. It is. But it's not going to be solved I know this might be touchy. It's not going to be solved by a protest or a hashtag. I'm not saying that those things, that protests and hashtags and all that stuff, I'm not saying that they don't bring awareness. I'm not saying that they aren't helpful to bring some awareness. For some of us, this has been a catalytic event in our life to recognize that there is a lot more work to be done. And as much as that's true, I think that if we're going to, in a, as a country and as a world, experience true unity, that there is an ingredient, an ingredient that's missing. So I want to read to Ephesians 4, and then I'll kind of begin to unpack it and explain it. It's in verse 3 through 6. It says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I want us to think about um, the period of time uh, following the resurrection of Jesus. Scripture tells us that Jesus appeared to his followers at different times, at different places over the span of 40 days. And when Jesus appeared to them, he was always speaking about the kingdom of God. And then all of a sudden, they, they, there's this time in which he appears to the disciples and they gather around him and, and they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is this it? Is this the end times? And trust me, I have asked myself that question a lot in the last three months. I don't have an answer for you. Because they're asking the same question we're asking right now. And this is Jesus' response and probably his response to us today. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So then, in verse 14, they, they go together, they join together, and they, they're praying fervently, constantly. They're getting on their knees and they're praying for God to move and work, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come that Jesus tells them about. And then in Acts chapter 2, it says that when the day of Pentecost came, they were all, to, they were all together in one place. And that's, a, that's an interesting way to put that. They were all together. These people are from all walks of life. Right? All different kinds of people, ethnicities, all of this. And they're all together. Uh, some scripture, or most scholars believe there's like 120, but then Jesus at a different time says there's 300. I don't know where the other people went, but they were all gathered together. 
And now, all of a sudden, because of their prayer, there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them. And it was so powerful that, and, and, the, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was so loud that all of Jerusalem began to gather around and find out what in the world was that. And so they gather, they come to the place in which they hear the noise, and, and, and it was so powerful the people on the people that were praying that as they're coming out of the room, they're kind of stumbling around as though they, they look like they're drunk. The reality is, is it's nine in the morning. And I want to, before we go on with what, what, with what happens next, I just want to stop for a second and focus on the fact that it was all of them together in the room praying and contending for God to move. And I would just say that true unity, that if we are going to have unity, it's going to require diversity. Unity doesn't just tolerate diversity, it actually celebrates it. In order for there to be unity, we have to have diversity. And I would contend that unity is not something that we can just manufacture or create. Are there things that we can do? Yes. Are there good things that we can be as Christ followers? Absolutely. But I don't believe that we can just manufacture unity. Because what we're seeing is, is that most of our human efforts for unity are just these simple attempts to just try to get people to agree with one another. And if you've been around for very long, you know that people are not going to agree on everything. And if you don't know that, uh, and you're convinced that you're going to get the other half of your people to agree with you, you're delusional. Like, it is not going to happen. But I don't think that that's what unity is, is where we're all agreeing on everything. In John chapter 17, it says, The glory that you have given me, and this is Jesus speaking, glory that you have given me, I have now given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I, I gave them my glory, the manifest presence of Jesus, the presence of God. I gave them my presence. Why did he do that? So that they might be one. And when the power of God moves, if you've ever been in a situation where uh, you've been worshiping together and there's just a, a move of the Holy Spirit, you know what's interesting about that? Is it's really hard to find anyone that's mad at someone else. When the manifest presence of God is, is evident, is there, all of a sudden it's, it's I, I'm not, all the hostilities and the objections, all of those things, they, they begin to lose their importance and our focus is completely on the presence of God. I believe that the foundation, the base of unity is that in this case they prayed together. It says that they prayed together in one accord. They prayed fervently, constantly together. And it, this was the kind of, of self-sacrificial prayer. It was, it was them saying, I'm going to put everything else on hold. And I'm not going to just ease my conscience and check a box and say, well, I prayed for unity. But I'm going to just affect, I'm just going to continually pray until God moves. It reminds me of the passage of scripture that says it's the effect of fervent prayers of the righteous that avails much. 
See, what prayer does is it begins to remove the obstacles to unity. We still need to go. We still need to do. We still need to see people the way that Jesus sees them. But at the end of the day, what what prayer does is it begins to remove all of the things that are going to keep us from doing that. What would it look like if we as a church... Listen to the passage of Scripture where it says that we are to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. That even though in the midst of our life and we see somebody who's just in, the, in a place of mourning, but we've had the best day ever, is the proper response to that to come to that person and say, man, that's a horrible day. Let me tell you about how good my day was. No. No, the response is to set our day aside and to be able to Weep with those who weep. We may not experience the things that other people are experiencing and are going through. And instead of us saying, hey, you know what? That sucks to be you, to be able to set our stuff aside and to be able to say, let me cry with you. What drew the early Christians to a place of unity was this, this roar of heaven, this sound of the heart of God, and it, and it awakened an entire city. I think that at times, and I, I believe this throughout my life, but uh, none more than now. I think that at times God will offend our mind to reveal what's going on in our hearts. These people have been praying for God to move. God moves. They stumble their way out of their their room and everybody thinks they're drunk and Peter stands up with the 11 and he raises his voice and he addresses the crowd and he says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. I said, listen carefully to what I'm saying to you. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. And he reminds them it's only nine in the morning. He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And this is very interesting. I've never seen it until now in this context. He goes on to preach Joel's scripture, and it says, In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. And then look at, this is very interesting. He says, Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. When the Spirit of God moves, when the Spirit of God shows up, Guess what? The gender barrier is broken. It says your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. When the Spirit of God shows up, the age barrier is broken. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days and they will prophesy. When the Spirit of God shows up, the class barrier is broken. When the Holy Spirit shows up, when, he, when the manifestation presence of God shows up in power, it is a level playing field. And as much as we need to do things, as much as we need to see people the way that Jesus sees them, and as much as important as it is for us to recognize the mercy that we have received, can I just say that we need the power of God? 
We have to have the, the demonstration of the resurrection power of God flowing through the lives of believers every single day. I'm reminded of the scripture in Isaiah that says, the spirit of God is, is upon you. So when your neighbors are terrified because they don't have hope in Christ and they're terrified of a spike, of a virus, you get to be hope. You get to speak life because the Spirit of God is upon you. When people are walking in fear because of this world and, and kind of throwing their hands up and saying, well, I guess we're going to hell in a handbasket, guess what? The Spirit of God is upon you to change that narrative. The Spirit of God is upon us to confront injustice. The Spirit of God is upon us when we see something is not as the way that God would want it for us to speak up and do something different and to say something. Not because we have become some sort of activist, but because the Spirit of God is upon you. Maybe the question that we need to ask ourselves during this time, it says we ne neglected the invitation of the Spirit of God to be upon us. See, the Spirit of God comes upon us as a people because when that takes place, there is a demonstration of Jesus in our unity. We're not all going to agree in this church, let alone in this world. But the Spirit of God is what unifies us. There's going to be people around you that need time. They need you to listen. They need reassurance. The Spirit of God is upon you to be that person. If we want unity in our world, it comes from the Spirit of God manifest and living out through each and every one of us. And the Spirit of God comes when we gather together and we pray. How's our prayer life? I'm not talking about just ticking the box and saying, well, I kind of prayed for unity, I prayed for the riots, I prayed for the... No, I'm saying, how's our prayer life where we're contending for the manifest presence of God to pour out on us so that we can be hope and life to this world, not because of who we are, but because of who he is through us. We can do all of the things. Those are good things. But I would contend that without the manifest presence of God in our life, we will not see unity even if we do all those things. We have to. We have to be contending for God to pour his spirit out on us. Let's pray.